Hi, hey, hello. This is not Corinne Malcolm. Sorry, guys. Uh, I'm Hillary Allen. And I'm Keely Hevinger. And this is episode 19. Welcome. Um, we're going to talk about heat acc- acclimation and races. Uh, it's going to be a really cool episode. Um, we're missing Corinne today, at least for the intro. Uh, you get to hear her lovely voice later. Um, but she's on her honeymoon, then she's preparing to race Madeira. But you have us us here today to uh to talk you through this this awesome interview that we did with Corinne actually so she's here with us actually in spirit um but thanks to our partners over at free trail um if you guys don't already listen to to Dylan's pod go and give it a listen as well we couldn't do it without them um but yeah let's kind of get into get into this to our news portion of our episode what are we we actually didn't really talk about um a bunch of things last week but we're first gonna I think like dive in with uh, this mini movement, I think that we were, that we've started. And I'm so, I'm so actually proud of it. I think it was inspired, I think by the whole episode of last week. So you guys, if you haven't listened to that, check it out. Um, but specifically Keely, by your post of like, I loved your post about, and all like the little stories that you posted about, like I had this many gels during my race and like really talking about, um, kind of doing the the fuel brag, I guess we're going to say it is. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> oh my gosh. It was so cool seeing everyone's stories. I've had people comment to me in person about how cool it was to read other people's stories. And so I do feel like it's a mini movement. I don't care if it's small, but it's, it's something, right. You always have to start change within the people that you can communicate with. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, like highlighting the fact like that we fueled a ton for the race and that that should be normalized. And then seeing how it motivated people to try something new during their training runs and their races over the like next coming weeks was pretty awesome and reached out, like got reached out to by so many people, the infamous Lucy Bartholomew reached out to me. She's an absolute crusher. For those of you who don't know her, that's probably, you probably do. But, um, she was saying that she like has been learning this along the way and that we kind of motivated her to start feeling a little bit more for like her 30 K race more than she ever would have fueled in the past for a 50 K. So that's pretty cool. That's and awesome. we also want to just reemphasize that we're not registered dietitians. We have a ton of them in our community that can help you if you do want a tailored nutrition plan. But I think it's, it's, it's safe to say that if you are practicing more fueling during your training and running, that's going to help you. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you, a lot of us are under fueling. And so we're really proud of you guys and keep all of those posts coming. Cause they are, they're making our days. Yeah, I know. It was so, it was so cool. It's like, we were, we were joking. I think I was sending you a DM Keely and I said, like, we, you know, we, we started a mini move movement and you're like, yeah, it's like, it's our little baby. And then I said, it's our hungry baby. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> so exactly. it, it literally made my day. It was so cool because I feel like it's a very positive movement, you know, not, with how little that you can consume, but how much can you consume? And it's like fueling for performance. I talk about this a lot with the athletes that I coach and yeah, it's kind of shifting that mindset. So, um, but yeah, it's like fueling for performance and then fueling for preparation for your races. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of people also reach out saying like, Oh, do you practice this in your training? Um, and a group of athletes I was coaching for the gorge, I had them practice it during the training and all of them came back to me and said the race was a lot easier in that regard because they were used to fueling and they were right. practicing what they were going into doing the race. And it wasn't like going from zero to hero during the race. It was practice what you're preaching and then come race day, it won't feel weird. 
And so, yeah, all these people messaging us that they're fueling more during their training runs and feeling amazing, like keep it up and then implement it during race day and let us know how it goes. Love it. <laughs> but yeah, we kind of missed a little bit last week because we were Oops. talking a lot. So we did not include race results last week um, and we apologize. However, we will touch back on them this week. And so yeah. um, the, the goo post that I made about 13 gels was in relation to the gorge 50 K for those of you who didn't listen to that episode, um, the gorge waterfalls, 50 K and hundred K were, were last weekend in Portland. So the second and third of April, and they were put on by free trail, our friends at free trail by Dylan Bowman and ran thrower and team and daybreak racing. And they rebirthed the gorge races. And we kind of just want to touch on the people who actually crushed those races because last week we gave our little recaps, but we didn't get to shout out everyone else who absolutely crushed those races. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, what should we start with? Let's start with I have to do ladies first for the hundred K, <laughs> um, Hannah, all good. And, uh, she, she took home the win and I have to say that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Keely, the first, uh, the first two or three women, I'm not sure if it was the third woman, but they all, the first two definitely. So Hannah, all good placed first and Tara Fraga, she placed second. Um, they were both under previous course records, um, with, I mean, an asterisk, it was a slightly different course. There was a little bit more, they, they, just due to the, uh, there's just a different course because of the revamping of the, of the gorge itself. Um, so they kind of took out a little climb, but still it was very fast time. Um, and third place was Ellie Pell. Um, yeah, they absolutely crush it. They were yeah, just, I think the top so five fast. women were actually under <clears throat> course record okay. Okay. because yeah, the course was different by was, like, I'd say six or seven miles were different on road versus trail, but totally. still either way flying the times were <laughs> super, super fast. Like yeah. so, so awesome to watch. Yeah. And, uh, so for the guys, uh, for the hundred K David Laney, um, he crushed it. Uh, I know him and, and Rich Lockwood and Joe McConaughey, um, that was first, second and third. Um, they were all kind of working together, uh, for a good portion of it. And then I saw David kind of pull away from, from, from those guys kind of to, to bring home the win. Um, and yeah, maybe you've heard Joe McConaughey, uh, string bean. He's, he's notorious in the FKT world. Uh, so he's getting some, you know, some, some hundred K fitness down in there and, and rich is a local out of Seattle. So and Joe's uh, your teammate. Yeah, of course. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. <laughs> Yeah. That was so cool. Yeah. Watching the men and the women just crush that race was so cool. And we could all watch the live feed during it because the yeah. coverage was phenomenal. It and was so, so cool. They had it with the winners the entire right. time you saw how people passed each other. You saw them working mm-hmm. together. And mm-hmm. so it was a really, really cool event. Yeah. It was awesome. And then yeah, Keely, I'll let you take the 50 K. Yeah. And so 50 K we'll, we'll start with males first, just to be nice. We don't need to we don't need to start with women both times, but, uh, this one was, was a pretty crazy race. And oh so my God. Yeah. Ryan Miller ended up taking home the win, but he only passed Tyler green with about a couple miles left. Um, and then Adam Mary got third. So pretty stout men's field. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all really close to one another, but Tyler was leading for the last bit. And then Ryan just absolutely started crushing the speed and passed him. And at the same time, the cameraman ran into a tree. And so everybody who was watching the live feed had no clue what happened for those last couple of miles until they found out who finished. And so, yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, <laughs> what a, like, what a dramatic way to end that race. And I kind of got to witness it as I was running out to the turnaround. I saw 
Tyler leading and I saw Ryan like pretty close to his heels. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh boy, this is going to be a race because they were all just flying down. Um, And then, yeah, I ended up taking the win, but it was not super easy. Obviously I got to the turnaround, came back down the hill, saw Leah Yingling charging up the hill, saw Taylor Nolan charging up the hill, saw Arden Young charging up the hill. So kept running pretty hard. And then um, Leah ended up hanging on for second, only by about five minutes. And then Taylor Nolan got third, even though she took a little detour. So super stout female and males field for the 50 K as well. So big weekend of racing. Um, and it was super cool. And yeah, Leah and I were actually also in the top 10. So pretty That's cool. Pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. It was so awesome to witness all of that. And one of my favorite moments, I think from the weekend was Ryan Miller's wife who she was, she's, she, I think she's, she said she's pregnant for how many weeks, but she missed him at the last aid station. So she's like hurrying to the end. And she was like, she was so ecstatic because she didn't know. She thought that he, she had more time and that he was in second. So when he came across the finish line, it was so cool to see her excitement. Oh, that's so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But so moving into some other incredible accomplishments, um, Devin Yanko fan favorite. I know <laughs> Corinne's really close with Devin. Um, she kind of made some history. Um, um, a couple weeks ago at the Umstead 100 miler, where she became the first female to win the race outright. Uh, that was in 14 hours, 23 minutes. It was a course record, you know, hats off Devin. Great job. So crazy. <laughs> I know. I like, wow. Yeah. Altitude is treating her well. It's yes. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Good job, Devin. That's, that looked like a stout performance and from all her posts, she seemed super happy with it and Mm -hmm. that she finally executed what she thought she could. So Mm -hmm. very cool. (laughs) Yeah. And then one of our other favorite races that Hillary and I were at, what seems like too soon for it to have happened again. (laughs) Totally. I mean, that's how I feel about Uh, (laughs) Madeira for Corinne coming up in a couple weeks. (laughs) Like Lake Sonoma happened last weekend. And I feel like me and Hillary were just there when it was (laughs) postponed to September. Um, And so that's why I didn't go back to this one. A, because I wanted to gorge and B, because it felt like way too soon. My PTSD and my runner amnesia has not kicked in quite uh, quite quick enough yet for me to decide I want to go run that 50 mile again. Um, <laughs> but we love that race. We love Gina Lucrezzi and team who put that on and Skip Brand and all of the Healdsburg Run Club who are the old um, um, RDs and stuff. And the community there is just so phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and this year, I think just because of all the other races happening around the time, like it didn't pull in as big of a field as usual, but it did still see some pretty fast times on the women's lens. Um, we had Brittany Charbonneau. She got first female in her first 50 miles so her debut 50 mile mm-hmm. at 727 or yeah, 727 mm-hmm. 14, which pretty fast time on that course. So mm-hmm. hats off to her for her first 50 mile to come away with a win at Sonoma. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And then catch Triana Jennings in second and then Ninja. I'm really sorry, Svenja. If that is wrong, please correct us. Got yes. third. Um, and then, yeah, the first place female was within under 5% of the first place male. So that was pretty cool. The women definitely showing up at the Lake Sonoma 50. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, just another shout out to Gina LaCrezzi and her partner, Justin Keller, who are the new RDs of this race. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we know Gina from Trail Sisters where she's kind of started this movement to really push for equity and approachability and trail and empower women and members of BIPOC community to join trail running. Um, And they're doing this kind of through this new Lake Sonoma race series. And so they're having kind of a three race um, series. They have the 50 mile, they have a marathon, sorry, four race series. They're going to have an all female half marathon. And then they now have a 100 K, which is going to be the new pinnacle race for like elites and to serve as a Western States qualifier. And so 
Um, yeah, hats off to Gina as well. Stoked she had her first year as RD for this race, and I'm excited to see how the race evolves. Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't say enough good things about Gina and then you know the community that she's building. In fact, I I was a uh, I had the chance to attend one of her um, Trail Sisters little seminar series. And I think, you know, someone like her, you know, she started Trail Sisters, um, oh, you know, years ago. And I was one of the original contributors on like the website when they were just doing articles. And now to see like what she's grown it into, I feel like she kind of produced like the diving board at which you're like, we, you know, you, me, Corinne could jump off to and like land into the podcast pool of like, you know, helping like promote like the women's voice in sport. So yeah, I think it's really cool what she's building. And yeah, I think also, you know, with her other standard of like, you know, trail sisters approved for different races. Um, I think that's really cool. So yeah, we love you. Good shout out. (laughs) And the trail sisters approves means they have like, right. Uh, certain things at the aid stations and yeah. So, I mean, they have um, basically a, um, a woman specific fit tee. They have uh, like t-shirt apparel. Um, I think they have like women, like, like sanitary napkins and, and things like this, like at, at um, available at aid stations. Um, yeah. Kind of things like that, that you wouldn't, that you like, you'd think that would kind of be normalized, but <laughs> very cool. Yeah. You'd yeah. think so. But I was just talking to a friend the other day and um, got wind that she was at a very infamous conference. I won't say names that did not have feasible milking stations for mothers. And so you're at this conference working 12 hour days and you don't have any private area to go to go milk if you need to provide milk for your, your children. So, hmm. you know, we're still, we're still chipping away at equity here. And so I think one more news piece, Yeah. Um, this just came in from this last weekend, Inke Brinkman. If I'm saying that incorrectly again, please correct me, but she got second at the Rotterdam marathon. Um, and she is a super speedy trail runner, at least up until now, she's also a super speedy road runner <laughs> and it was only her second marathon ever. Wow. And she set a new national record. Um, so she beat the old Dutch natu- national record by more than a minute that had stood for over 15 years. Wow. Um, and she only starts running in 2020 and she's 28 and I am stoked for the future of trail running. When I see people like this getting into the sport, Um, because I think it's like, it's just showing that the sport's evolving and that people that can still go throw down on the road marathon can come in and do trail running and vice versa. And obviously not everyone who does trail running has to go run marathons and stuff, but I think it's cool that you're seeing the two worlds kind of merge because I don't think you have to do one or the other. I think you can do both. I think so too. And just to reiterate that time, it's two twenty two fifty one. So that's like insane. Flying. <laughs> very, very impressive. Oh, I'm stoked to see what she does this summer in Europe because she's already has a second at Sierra Zanal under her belt and a first at the Zermatt marathon. So it'll be a really cool summer to watch her. And I think she just signed a Nike trail. So she has a new sponsor under her belt too. Pretty cool. Ooh. Yeah. Good things. Um, yeah, well, I think it's time. Let's, uh, get into, as Corinne says, the meat and potatoes of our episode. I'm just going to try to mimic Corinne for the host as as best as possible. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, today we're talking about heat training. Um, I think this is a pretty timely episode. We're trying to time it for those of us preparing for Western states or, you know, some notoriously hot summer races. So, you know, thankfully we, you know, we have an expert in, in our family here and that's Corinne Malcolm. Um, and so, you know, she got her master's degree kind of specialing in this. We'll kind of get into this in the, in the interview, but I had the, the chance to interview Corinne about heat training, talking about 
what it is, why we need to do it. And, you know, her, her strategies and and different pitfalls. It's a really awesome talk. And I think you guys are going to learn a lot. So yeah, let's uh, cut to cut to Corinne. Corinne, how are you doing today? I am good. Getting ready to travel. We're recording this way in advance because I'm headed on a honeymoon. So I, uh, I'm going to miss recording with you guys for a couple weeks. Well, that's why we're banking these. And, um, this is actually, this is, this is kind of cool because just with the three of us, you've got, you know, all of us are scientists, but you know, we obviously, we love you at the, over at the podcast. We know you super well, but, um, maybe the audience doesn't have a chance, hasn't had a chance to kind of know how badass you actually are <laughs> in addition to your, you know, your running prowess. But, um, so yeah, we get the chance to interview you today about heat acclimation. Um, and so this is your area of expertise. So I'm wondering if you can kind of provide a bit of a background um, for those listeners before we get into this podcast and I start asking you the nitty gritty questions like why, why are you the expert on this? Yeah, I would like to think that I am an, an area expert. There are definitely people that are much more experter, that's not a word, than me. Um, but so my educational background is in exercise physiology. So particularly like um, performance-oriented exercise physiology, so applied physiology. Um, And then I was in a graduate program that was specifically environmental physiology. So I spent a lot of time in a climactic chamber um, studying the kind of extremes of temperature, both very, very, very hot and very, very, very cold, um, as well as high altitude. So I'd like to think that coming into the sports of like ultra and trail and like specifically is that you know, my, um, my area of expertise is like, how do we thrive and survive in these kind of adverse environments? Um, yeah. So I think I, I, people are like, what's environmental physiology. It's, it's that it's studying how people survive, how people thrive in all these adverse environments that we put our bodies through. And I applied to sports, which is so cool. <laughs> nice. So yeah, so this is actually a really, this is something, this is an episode we have talked about um, recording for a while and um, asking you in particular about heat acclimation. So, um, I mean, first of all, I think let's start by defining it um, and then kind of tell us, tell us why it matters and why we need to think about it um, in terms of racing. And, you know, I think the timing of this matters for this episode for those of us racing a particular race. Yeah. Things are heating up, not just, not just Western States being around the corner. Um, when this comes out, Marathon de Saab will have just finished up, I believe, um, a very, very hot race, um, generally speaking in the Moroccan desert. So this is near and dear to my heart. I also have an athlete prepping for Badwater one, three, five this summer. Um, Jeremy Scanlon, you know him of, of Boulder. Oh, Jeremy, Jeremy yeah, is doing one, Badwater 135. So um, there are lots of hot races um, mm-hmm. that happen, sometimes surprisingly, um, particularly if you do an early season race um, coming out of a winter environment. Even if it's not that, quote unquote, that hot, it's still mm-hmm. hot. So mm-hmm. heat acclimation is really important. I think of it as an important phase of your training, just like training your gut. It's important to train for the environmental conditions you're going to be in. Otherwise you're kind of wasting your training in a way. So heat acclimation, um, there's heat acclimation and acclimatization. One has a Z one doesn't, um, and it's not just the British pronunciation of one or the other. It's generally speaking, if you're using the natural environment to acclimate, or if you're using a controlled environment to acclimate, 
um, is kind of how that gets divided out. But then the bigger thing is that when it comes to heat acclimation, we can kind of think of it being there's two big categories in which you have um, pre-race heat acclimation. Like how are you getting, how are you physiologically making changes in preparation for racing in the heat? And then the other one is what do you do during the race um, to mitigate heat? And that looks different based on the sport you're doing. Um, track and field athletes have some really cool ways to mitigate that with pre, pre-race cooling strategies that we'll talk about a little bit today um, that might not be as relevant to trail and ultra um, just because our events are so long, but there's still things that you can be doing um, during the race to mitigate heat. And the very first thing you can do though is to have enough time to heat acclimate ahead of your event so that your body can handle, can function better in the heat than it otherwise would. Yeah. So that's a question I think we'll get into a little bit later. Cause you know, it's, um, you know, I've read, I've read certain studies about when this heat acclimation should happen. Um, but let's, let's talk about, I think it's really interesting what you just mentioned, kind of the physiological adaptations that your body is actually going through during, during this kind of quote unquote training period. So what is your body actually doing? And so and that kind of goes into the answering the, why we need to actually do heat acclimatization. Well, uh, yeah, acclimation or acclimatization. Acclimatization. It sounds so fancy. Um, yeah. So our bodies are, are very clever and are designed to adapt to our environments, right? Like you have to, to survive in so many different places. Um, and heat and altitude are the ones that I think we adapt best to as humans. We can make some pretty quick changes, um, physiologically in order to not you know, not being capacitated, um, at extreme elevations or in extreme heat. Um, the cool part is that it happens relatively quickly and it, it times out a little differently. It turns out between male athletes and female athletes, um, as far as like how quickly these adaptations happen. Um, the biggest thing is that generally speaking, the, the bulk of the adaptations happen with four, within four to six days. Um, of, of that heat exposure, your body makes really, really quick changes. Um, and then most of those adaptations, um, are completed more or less in about 10 to 14 days of heat exposure. So two weeks of heat exposure. Um, you might naturally get that in some places in the country it's heating up in Texas, for example. Um, but you're not going to get that if you live in like Bellingham, Washington, where I've, I've prepped for Western States before it's very, very wet and cold. Portland is the same way. It's kind of hard to prep for some of these hot early summer races and those locations. Um, but the biggest things that are going to happen and you'll feel it right away. If you're getting into a sauna, for example, your heart rate's high when you're exposed to heat, or if you go for a run, your first hot run of the season, right? Your perceived exertion is all over the place. You can't run quite as fast at that perceived exertion, your heart rate's high. So the things that are going to change most quickly within that two week window, um, are things like your resting heart rate and your active heart rate are going to kind of return to normal. Um, you're going to have lowered core body temperature, um, and it stays more normal. You're, you've got kind of great thermal capacity, greater thermal capacity. Um, your sweat onset is sooner. So we talk about becoming a more efficient sweater, which is really, really critical in certain environments, like dry heat, that ability to sweat is really important. Um, so sweat onset. So how, how soon you start sweating as well as, um, how much you sweat changes a little bit. And that's kind of where your sweat might be more dilute. Um, isn't necessarily that you're holding on to more electrolytes. Um, it's that you're sweating a little bit more volume of liquid. Um, 
your plasma volume expands. And that's why people sometimes use um, heat acclimation or sauna training in prep for altitude, because having increased plasma volume can be important at those at increased elevation, because that's going to improve your cardiac stability and your cardiac output. So basically it's going to, it's going to improve your aerobic capacity, um, as well as your tolerance to the heat. And part of that is a cellular adaptation, um, in which, you know, like that tolerance can be a, a cellular level, but it's also like, it gets easier to be in that environment. Um, the longer, like the more heat acclimated you are. I think that's so interesting. It's like the, um, I guess I'm, like when you more quickly sweat, right. It's like, I'm one of those people, like when I, when I start exercising, I just like start sweating immediately. Like my heart rate goes up and I just start sweating and, you know, I've gotten maybe some crap for it. So maybe I'm either like there, maybe am I, am I heat acclimated? I think it also maybe happens constantly. when you're constantly right. I think it also maybe impossible in Colorado, but, uh, yeah, I think I'm also constant. It's, it's correlated to, and you can correct me if I'm wrong to kind of your, your body also does this when you get more quote unquote fit, if you're used to exercising a lot, cause you, it's like, okay, I'm moving. I'm going to be doing this for a long time. Let's cool ourselves down. Yep. Yeah. Your body wants to thermoregulate, right. It's, you know, it's trying to maintain homeostasis that, that kind of normal zone for your body. And people think of that as like a static thing. And it's not like homeostasis or equilibrium is kind of this very, uh, this constant shifting thing. And so your body is going to vasodilate or vasoconstrict, so sending more blood to your skin surface or or keeping it towards your core, depending on if it needs to heat you up or cool you down. Um, so your body's doing all these things to, to try to maintain its happy place. And obviously there's a, there's a range there um, that's a little bit different for everyone, but that's why like you can get too hot. That's where heat stroke or heat illness comes to into effect. And when your body can no longer maintain um, homeostasis, you're going to have some like hyperthermic, so way too warm or hypothermic, um, kind of side effects. Once, once you get out of that, like normal range where your body can't compensate anymore. Yeah. So this is, I think some like really interesting, uh, really interesting things that we can get into now is, um, and two questions really, I'm, I'm curious. So for this, we've talked about kind of the time frame that your body does that, you know, four to six days or, you know, 10 to 14 days, right? So four to six is a kind of the acute where you're starting to make these adaptations are kind of more like set in, in that two week range, right? So then when do we incorporate this into our training block, right? If we're preparing for a race like Western States, and then, I mean, I guess you can answer that. Or, you know, then we can got to get into best strategies because I've seen a lot of crazy stuff out there. Chris. There's a lot of crazy stuff. And we'll, and we'll kind of wait. We can talk about that for a long time, but we'll talk about timing mm. to start um, because you're looking at this, like you're adding stress to the body, I think is the big thing here, right? Like it's, it's stressful to, to do this on top of training. So I think it's important to be really thoughtful um, when crafting a timeline to this. Um, I've seen different coaches do it different ways. I helped to write the environmental physiology chapter um, for Jason Coop's book. I also, um, if any of you are doing that certificate program, the ultra endurance sports, something or another, I should probably know the name of it um, that Jason's affiliated with. I wrote the environmental physiology chapter for, for that. They're the environmental physiology module for that. So like there's going to be some overlap to maybe what you've seen um, there. I do recommend a lot of athletes if we're way far away from a race and you're curious about using heat acclimation for an A race that might be warm, why not give it a trial run? There's no, there's no sense in, in, in not doing that. So I've seen Coop and other coaches even just make that as part of the program where you're going to do two rounds of this. Um, 
I don't think that's entirely necessary, but if you want to understand how you respond to heat acclimation, how, how bad or good you feel utilizing a sauna or a hot tub or whatever it might be, um, getting in something way far away from the race is, has no disadvantage. Um, there is a decay and that's why timing's important. Basically for every three days that you are away from the heat, you lose a percent of those adaptations. And so we try to time it out to a race to be appropriate for that. Um, so generally speaking, I like to use kind of a, a medium low week that's ahead of the taper for that bulk of that. So you're still fairly close to the race. Maybe that you're four weeks out, for example, maybe you've got a really big week, five weeks out and a really big week, three weeks out. Why not use that kind of medium low week, um, when you're not running quite as much volume or quite as much intensity, um, to get, to do that heat acclimation, to do a, a bulk, to do that bulk, you know, let's try to do seven days in a row or seven days out of 10 days to get the, the kind of meat and potatoes of that adaptation. And then from there, all the way through race day, you know, at a minimum, you need exposure once every third day. And that can be all the way. I, I generally do that where it's like, we do a big seven to 10 day block, you know, three weeks out ahead of taper, but maybe not where the volume is the highest. Um, and then from there forward towards the race, basically every third day, getting back into that heat exposure. If, if the environment you live in, isn't providing that to you. Um, which for a lot of, for a lot of us, for early season races, like Western States, you're not in an environment where you're getting that heat exposure every day, even if you're trying to run in the middle of the day. And so doing generally speaking, like I still, we'll talk more about this in a second, like passive heating is my like big plus. So it's like once every third day you're getting in the sauna. And I would say that, you know, doing that through maybe the Monday of race week, um, is all you need. There's no like between a Monday and a Saturday race start, like there's not so many days there that you're going to lose your adaptation over that. Like I, I get nervous when athletes get in the sauna, you know, on Thursday of race week, personally, it's like, that's, <laughs> that's more stress than you need. Right. So I try to, I try to, you know, alleviate that by having that timed out a little bit further away from the race, just because the rate of decay of that adaptation is not so much that you will lose the adaptation by race day. Um, if your last sauna session is the Monday of race week, but I wouldn't have someone do seven days of sauna in a row and then taper for a week and race either. Cause I think that stress is just way too high, mm -hmm. um, to be appropriate because the goal of all this, right. Is to provide the smallest dose possible. That's going to elicit a response. And so you want, you know, more is not better. They've done studies on this, right? Like double, yeah. double sessions or, you know, 30 days in a row in a sauna does not pr produce more adaptation than that seven to 10 days. And that 30 minute, like we'll talk about why 30 minutes is important, um, here in a second, but more is not better. Sorry. My dog is dreaming now, apparently <laughs> she's on the floor, like twitching. Good but maybe, job, maybe more dreaming is better. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe more dreaming is better. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's how I think of timing. I think if you have the opportunity to do a round of this far away from your race, maybe on an easy week or on mm -hmm. a lower volume week, um, just get a sense for how tired it makes you. And then as you get closer to the race, I like to do a block that's still kind of in, in advance of the taper, but isn't on like your final peak week. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's an insane ask for an athlete, I think. Um, and uh, that timing works out because then you can get in the sauna every third day or get in the hot tub every third day between there and race day and get there. I think feeling, feeling fresh, feeling tapered, um, but having that heat adaptation still in like in effect, uh, like almost to a hundred percent. Right. And so I do well with examples too. So I'm looking back, obviously our coach is the same coach. He's also a brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, his, his, 
his uh, master's degree is not in the same as yours, but um, his this is in hydration. Exactly. Hydration is so such related. A we love it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I'm looking back to, to my race in Madeira, Corinne, you're getting ready to go there too. And we're, we were both this, the race and I did, it was in November. And so I'm coming from, it's not hot in Colorado. I mean, we just had our first snow. Um, I wasn't getting that training. And so I was going to the race about, you know, 20 days beforehand to get like my peak week on the course before. And so Adam had me do, but not during, during my peak week, I was going to be there. So I was already getting a little extra stress, but he had me do like, uh, you know, kind of in a, in a, in a down week, um, riding the bike on, you know, fully curled on my, on my bike trainer, like, you know, the one sweating, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I sweat a lot. So, you know, something like that is what we're talking about when we're talking about like peak peak weeks and trying to maximize, um, you know, or minimize actually the, the stress that an athlete is under. Right. Cause you can only adapt so much before your body's just like, stop, I'm tired. I yeah. We want, we want the smallest effective dose of stress to make the right. adaptation. And that's like an applied physiology principle. That's what we're aiming for. Mm-hmm. That, and that's the truth. That's true with training too. Like what is the, what is the effective dose? Um, that more is not always better as we've all, like some people are high volume, some people are low volume, like more is not always better. It's kind of, you got to meet the, meet the athlete where they're at for smallest effective dose, um, right. to elicit the adaptations. So you spoke about this a little bit, but now let's get into kind of the crazy things that maybe you've seen. Um, but let's get into the best strategies for heat acclimation. Um, yeah. What, what do you think kind of discuss like the hierarchy of, of what you see these, these, these strategies are? Yeah. As you just, as you just mentioned, getting on a bike trainer and, and sweating it out, like that's definitely a strategy. I see it with like Kona, Kona athletes, um, for Ironman, like they're, they're in their, they're in their laundry room making it as hot as possible on their trainer, um, trying to sweat it out if they don't have that natural environment, but generally speaking, um, and obviously not everyone has all these things available to them and that's important to, to recognize. Um, but there is kind of a hierarchy of what is best to elicit that response. Um, and what that's going to look like generally speaking is that there, there are a number of ways you can do it. You can do what's called passive heating, which is going to be using a dry, dry sauna, a steam room or a wet sauna, a hot tub. Um, so there's no exercise involved in that. That is you sitting in that place, um, sweating it out. And an important note here for listeners is that I did not include infrared saunas in that. And that is because while they make us feel really good, we currently, there's no literature on infrared saunas in this in this space. And we, we need a study done. We need a study done that looks at a dry sauna, a dry traditional sauna versus an infrared sauna to understand like, is the core body temperature being elevated enough to elicit these physiological responses? Um, and that research has not been done. So you'll hear me say dry sauna, you'll hear me see wet sauna or steam room. I'm not talking about infrared saunas because we don't know. And so when I encourage an athlete to get in a sauna, I'm going to always encourage them to get into a dry sauna if possible. And that once again, that all that dry saunas, steam rooms, and hot tubs are all encompassed in that passive heating in which you don't have to do any exercise in there. You're not running in a treadmill. You're not, um, you're not doing calisthenics, um, you're not doing step-ups in there. Um, it, it can be passive. There's no reason to add more stress to it. Um, the next one that you'll see a lot of times is I'm just kind of de- describe them and then I'll talk about hierarchy. The next one you'll right. see, you see this a lot with British runners in particular or athletes in the UK. Um, a lot of the universities over there have a climactic chamber. Um, this is a specialized chamber that can do, um, generally speaking, it can do temperature. It can also replicate humidity and it can also, rec- um, it can also replicate solar 
um, the solar influence. So um, how bright the light is shining on you um, changes kind of the, how the ambient air temperature feels. Um, so they, they can control all of that and they can, they generally also monitor core body temperature in there, but it's active. They have you running on a treadmill or riding your bike in there, um, for that exposure. It's used in research a lot. I've spent a lot of time in one running studies, um, but in the cold, so freezing, like in a a huge parka while people run on a treadmill in the cold. Um, but it's important to recognize that that's an active, um, an active modality. And, um, it's not as we don't see it as commonly in the U S being used for heat acclimation. Cause it's not readily available. Um, they're very expensive. So not a lot of people, um, not even a lot of universities have them. Um, and the last one you'll see is another type of active heat acclimation. And that could be riding the trainer, but generally it's overdressing. So it's riding the trainer in a lot of clothes. Um, it could be hot yoga, wearing a lot of clothes. It could be, um, going out on a hike in a lot of clothes. Um, and you see that a lot for Western states. You see a lot of people out in like, I'm wearing four jackets and gloves and hats and three pairs of tights and two pairs of socks. And I went out for this, I did all my runs that way this week. Um, so you can kind of see all of a sudden where, if we're talking about smallest dose possible, where there might be certain benefits in the hierarchy, they all work. The bottom line is they all work, but they all take a different level of exposure And they all provide, they all kind of, I think some have pros and some have cons. Um, So the hierarchy that we see, that we see and that we advise athletes is that a dry sauna is the best. Um, Wet sauna and hot tub, so steam room and a hot tub um, are generally the next, the next best option. Um, A steam room is hard because it's, it's highly humid. Um, And as you know, evaporative cooling is really important. And so it's really hard. Um, it's hard to stay in a, in a steam room long enough, um, to get an adaptation because it's just, it's really uncomfortable is is how I'll put it. You can't sweat. And I think that's why the hot tub Mm. is also very uncomfortable because you can't sweat, but you got to be fully emerged in there. Like, don't let your shoulders come out to cool off. You got to be fully (laughs) emerged. Um, but people have used that effectively and it, it, it is once again, all these methods are effective. And then kind of the last possible option is overdressing. Um, particularly I think cyclists might have it a little bit easier because it doesn't necessarily totally negate from the effectiveness of the workout. Hmm. Um, but it's really hard to run normally when you're overdressed. Um, it's, it's really hard to do high quality training sessions when you're overdressed. So that's kind of why it's at the bottom, but it, once again, it does work. And so why is there a hierarchy in place is like, that comes down to this idea of like, there are pros and cons for each. Um, the, maybe the biggest con for a dry sauna is that not everyone has, has that available to them. Um, I would encourage you to check out your gyms. Um, I've got people are like, my friend has one, so I'm going to use it. And I'm like, perfect. Or, um, I, I've definitely used, you know, our climbing gym dry sauna I've used, I've gotten a gym membership just to use a sauna before Western States before, because, um, the gym that I went to didn't have one. So you can get kind of creative in that standpoint. The other major con I'll say of a dry sauna is that or, or dry sauna, wet sauna, or hot tub is that for passive heating, it's most effective if you use it as close to after exercise as possible. Mm-hmm. It's also why you get, that's also why you only have to do it for like 20 or 30 minutes is because when, if you go in as close to exercise as possible, say 30 minutes within 30 minutes, your core body temperature is still elevated, right? And that's the goal to elicit the adaptation. You have to have your core body temperature elevated for a certain amount of time, 
essentially. So if you go in post-run, your core body temperature is already elevated. Even if you're not running in the cold, your core body temperature is, out, is elevated. Get in the dry sauna, get in the hot tub, get in the, um, in the steam room. You're going in for 30 minutes at most because your core body temperature is already elevated. So that can be hard for timing with people with work. Mm-hmm. I did a bunch. I was working a ton before the 2018 Western States, really odd schedule. And um, I could not always get in after my run. It just didn't work. And so what I would do is that I had to run in the morning and I couldn't sauna in the afternoon. What I would do is I'd go to the gym, I'd overdress, I'd get on, you know, the elliptical or a spin bike for 30 minutes or so, and I'd get my core body temperature up and then I'd go in the sauna. So I was adding a little, I had to add a little bit of exercise to make it really work, but I didn't have to go out and do my whole run overdressed. Um, I was still doing intensity. Um, and I didn't have to be in the hot tub for an hour. You might want to be in the hot tub for an hour, but it turns out it's kind of hard to be in the hot tub <laughs> or the sauna for an hour. And then why overdressing is at the bottom is mm-hmm. because in my mind, one, you've got to do it for a lot longer. You know, you might have to do it for, you might have to go for a 90 minute run or a 90 minute trainer ride to really get that adaptation. Um, additionally, I think the biggest con in my mind is that while well, once again, it's effective, it's, it, it brings down the quality of the training session. Same with the climactic chamber. Like my athlete who's going to MDS, who will probably do very well at Marathon de Sobs, um, has had a bunch of chamber sessions. And the chamber sessions are great because they build confidence. Same mm-hmm. with overdressing. They build confidence because you're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were some long runs that we kind of had to tweak in order to get that that chamber session in. And so it did in a way detract from his training on those weeks because he had this active, this activity that he had to do already. Right. So same with overdressing, right? Like it's, it's, you can't, it's hard to go do a speed workout like that. It's hard to go do a high quality long run mm-hmm. like that. And so while I think the pro of that is that it's maybe more uncomfortable and it's, you're doing your activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's so like the most specific, right? It's like the most if specific. It's, it is the most specific, but it might actually, like you said, de- deter from, from that, like the most specific training that you're actually trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Like you can't actually do the training run that you need yeah. to do because you're waddling around in 18 coats. <laughs> like, so what I did for Western States, when I moved to the Bay area was that I did a combination. I did my, I did a bunch of dry sauna, um, you know, kind of followed that protocol, but then I periodically would go on an overdressed hike. It was, it was intentionally a hike. It wasn't, you know, a crazy, it wasn't my main training session or it was a, it was, you know, it was going to have like an easier endurance day. And so Adam would have me layer up and go for a warm hike just because it did, it was different. Like mentally, like going and doing that thing did kind of, I feel like give me a little bit of a boost. Was it physiologically the, like the most important way to do it? No, but psychologically, I think that's where the benefit of overdressing is. Is it the most, is the most, is it the most time effective? No. Is it, does it maybe detract from your actual training the most? Probably. Mm -hmm. But once again, all of these methods are effective. So any of them that you have available to you, you can do. I just think you need to be really cognizant and really thoughtful with how you apply them to your training or to your athletes training in order to protect the training that they need to do be cognizant of the total stress level applied to the athlete and then what's available to them. Yeah. You have to merge all those things together to get the perfect heat acclimation protocol in place. And that's going to look different to everyone. And that's totally okay. I love that. I mean, 
obviously we all, we know this, it is super specific, but one of the reasons that I did the bike trainer and it was after, you know, a run. So I was kind of, I would like go home and like rip off my run clothes and then put on all the layers for the bike. And then, you know, I'm, I'm doing a running race. So cycling obviously is not the most specific, but it was in my living room, right? The, the saunas were still closed. Hot tubs are still closed. Like I still couldn't kind of go and do that. So yeah, I mean, it's good to know that all of these work, but you know, and I guess maybe one can, even at the bottom, bottom overdressing can become number one. If that's the only thing you have available. It's the only thing you have, it, it, it totally becomes number one. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's totally fine. And I think during the pandemic, like Western States last year would have looked very different for me versus Western States in 2019 or 2018 pre pandemic when like the gym, the gym sauna, you know, they were everywhere mm-hmm. type of thing. Cause I don't have the means to personally have a sauna in my yard. Right. And like, while you can buy an infrared sauna to put in your house and they're pretty inexpensive, there isn't the research yet. So I would still have you overdress, overdo the infrared sauna. Mm -hmm. I think they're very relaxing, but until we have conclusive research on it, like that's why I kind of, I'd rather you go to the gym sauna. I'd rather you, I'd rather you go overdress on the bike trainer or, or on your, on your hike. Um, just because I think that we, we know they're effective versus we don't know that the infrared sauna is effective. And people are going to harp on me for, for harping on infrared saunas. But I think that nah. like, that's my, that's my biggest concern. Give me money. I'll do the research project. I'm so in <laughs> Red yeah, Bull, Red I... Bull fund this project for me. Awesome. I'll be your, your, um, your subject. How about that? <laughs> Perfect. I'm in. And Keely too, obviously she's running Western States. I don't need it. <laughs> I know we're going to apply all of this to all of this no. training. I'll do it. So then Keely's not, she's, she doesn't have extra stress on her plate. So yeah. <laughs> so I definitely don't need to become a more efficient sweater because I sweat all the time, but I definitely think there's advantages to doing these heat climatization protocols. So Hillary, have you ever had to do one of these for any of your races? Uh, yeah. So you know, a challenge for me, um, and even for, you know, training for spring races is like in Colorado, I'm training in the winter. And then all of a sudden it can just be like super hot, you know, even like on April, like maybe there's going to be race day and it's going to be 70 degrees. And I've been training in like 20 degrees, (laughs) but for my race in Madeira, it was the same thing. I was going to this tropical environment, um, or so to speak tropical environment, I mean, it was, it was a little bit, some, some more drastic weather when I raced it, but it was very humid, very hot. Um, and I, it was in November and I was, you know, it was already, the seasons were changing in Colorado. And so I had a bit of a, um, you know, a different protocol based on kind of what I had available that was during the pandemic. So I couldn't use a sauna or a hot tub because that wasn't available to me. So I basically just like layered up, uh, put in on a bunch of clothes, like all my winter clothes and got on my bike trainer. Um, so it was, is, you know, a lesson in suffering, I think mental and mental toughness and heat training. Does that count? (laughs) I think so. I think to Corinne's point in the talk is that the layering of the clothing um, strategy is a lot more mental than physical. Like, obviously you're still getting that physical adaptation. The physiology is changing, but mentally that is just hard. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, like she said, they all work every single Mm -hmm. protocol that you have, it works. It's just, which one is maybe the most like time efficient or, you know, effective with your time. Right. That's kind of how she would rank them, but they all work. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, And what I think is really cool too, is that you can use heat acclimatization for altitude, right? And so you can use it to not only get better at sweating efficiency in heat, hot environments, but you can also use it to maybe help you if you're coming from Portland, like me, 
at a high altitude race because the first time I was introduced to hot heat training was um, maybe in 2018 or 2017 before I did CCC. Um, and at the time I was living in Portland and training a lot here and we have great climbs, but we don't go above 2000 feet and CCCs run pretty much above 6,000 the entire time or 2000 meters or so. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I did a huge sauna protocol before that. And I really do think that helped me a lot. Um, now obviously it's not a one for one, but I do think heat training can also benefit for altitude training. And then, yeah, I mean, I think the sauna is, is my go-to. I just absolutely love the sauna. So if I had to do a sauna training every day, all year round, like I'd be cool with that. I'm trying to build one. So <laughs> <laughs> nice. I know. I hear you need it in Portland this week. Um, <laughs> seriously. Yeah. But I mean, I've definitely crushed the pre-race like heat acclimatization protocols, right? Like, cause mm-hmm. I don't feel like they're, they're that hard. If you can actually have access to a sauna, it's relatively easy mm-hmm. to go run and then finish at a sauna and do it for an hour. But mm-hmm. what I find harder is like how to actually implement the in-race cooling strategies. Because when I get to aid stations, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm freaking out. Right. I go in, mm-hmm. I go in, I'm like, I'm going to chill out and I'll stand here for a while. And then as soon as I get there, I decide I need to leave. And all of your planning for in-race cooling strategies just goes out the window. And so like last year for Western States, I just didn't stay in the aid stations long enough to actually cool down. And, and like, I definitely didn't get heat sickness or anything like that, but I did not cool down as much as I hear Corinne talking about in this next section. And so let's jump to the next part about how we can kind of implement in-race cooling strategies and then kind of what to do if things go wrong. You've done the work. You've done the first thing. Check, check, right? You you did the pre-work, like big plus, right? So why that's important is that like akin to altitude, being in the heat puts a lot of additional stress in the body. It creates this competition for blood flow, right? Like in, in the alt- at altitude, your muscles need the oxygen right? And so you shunt blood away from your gut, for example. It's really hard to eat at altitude. That's why Leadville is so hard. So eating is really hard at 10,000 feet because the blood wants to go elsewhere. So same thing happens in the heat. Blood wants to go elsewhere. So in the heat, what your body does to prioritize cooling down and thermoregulating is it vasodilates um, and sends blood to your skin surface because heck, get that out of your core get that to your skin, get it into the environment around you, right? That's really, really important. But what that does though, is it moves blood away from other tissues. So that includes your gut again. And so we call that splanchnic hypoperfusion. It's a very like fun sounding word. Hmm. Um, and basically that means a lack of blood flow to those tissues of, of your digestive tract. And that causes GI distress. It causes malabsorption of fluid and calories that your body's trying to pull across your small intestines. And so much so that actually like I've had this, I've had this experience This is probably TMI. You can actually, when you have a lack of oxygen to those tissues, you can basically kill some of the tissue. And so this is really common in the colon. So you can have post-race GI complications. Yeah. Um, the one thing I would say is that it was uh, like the color of said to indicate that your colon was distressed. It's, uh, it, it's, yeah. what is it? What is it? Ellie? It's like black. It's yeah. not cool. <laughs> yeah. It's not great. So it's basically like a bunch of like dead cells and like, dead I think cells, dead blood, probably dead blood. Exactly. Mm. 
So not great. It's short lived. It's generally not a permanent, a permanent issue, but that's part of the reason why you've got to be really nice to your gut and your digestive organs post race is because that you just put them through some, put them through the ringer and also blood, you know, you need blood in your brain, right? Like blood needs to go places and it's competing for that in the heat. So being heat acclimated ahead of the race can prevent GI issues. It can prevent, um, the other hyperthermic effects, including dizziness and exercise associated muscle cramps, right? Like being heat acclimated for your event is so critical that I get so angry and sad when I watch poor, this is going to roll into our next topic. When I watch poor heat mitigation strategies play out at races like the Olympic marathon in Tokyo or Western states where you're like, I feel like we could fix the problem here if they just gave me 30 minutes of their time. Yeah, you know, and it's kind of, it's so funny because, well, it is sad, not funny because people work so hard. And, you know, if, you know, the athlete has to do the work, but I also think the crew members need to know, have some tricks up their sleeve. So, you know, ultra running is this unique blend of it's like an individual sport, but you also need a team. You need almost a village at times. So let's talk about some strategies that on race day that every crew member at Western state should know Yeah, and <laughs> it's their runner. It's important. Not right. only that you are doing this to your runner, but you're doing it to yourself. I've seen some crew members get pretty destroyed at Western States because they're hanging out at forest Hill in the sunshine and it's 102 degrees out there. So Yes, this is for your runner, but it's also for you if you are crewing at these hot weather races. Um, big thing here is that there are pre, there are during race mitigation strategies, right? Like um, track and field, they can do cool things like there's a spider web falling down from the ceiling. <sighs> okay, anyway, um, uh, you'll see runners um, wear ice vests, for example, ahead of ahead, you saw the Olympics, ahead of the Olympic marathon, ahead of specific track and field events. Um, the idea being there that they're cooling their core temperature down a little bit without like cooling all their muscles down. It allows them to warm up um, while staying cool and having what we'll call a heat reserve. Right, the the you start with a little bit a um, little bit lower core body temperature that allows you more degrees of that your body can warm up before you become hyperthermic, and you know suffer various hyperthermic effects. Um, but those things are too kind of short lived to be fully applied to the sport of trail and ultra running, just because um, the races start generally early in the morning, so it's a little bit cooler, um, and also you're going to be running for six, eight, 10, 12, 24, 36, 48 hours. So it's, you can't really uh, wear that vest around for 30 minutes pre-race and hope that that's going to tide you over, um, all the way to the Auburn track. So, um, things that I like to see out at Western States are it's dry. That's really, that's really, really important. It's a dry environment, i.e. it's a good environment for evaporative cooling. Yeah. We love evaporative cooling. It's our mm. best friend. It's like one of the, it's, it's probably, it's the most effective way our body has it cooling itself down. I'm really sorry for my folks in Texas and the Midwest and the East coast, the humidity, it's a killer. And it's because you can't evaporate, you can't use evaporative cooling as effectively. So what evaporative cooling does, right. Is that you've got all this blood flow going to your skin surface and you're sweating. And because you're heat acclimated, you're sweating really well. And we love that. We love that you're sweating well. And what that does then is that basically as that sweat evaporates into the environment, because there's room for it to go there, right? When it's too humid, there's no, there's no space for that sweat basically to go into the environment. And it's kind of wasted. It trips off you, which is very sad in a dry environment like California or Colorado, um, that evaporative cooling, that sweat 
evaporates into the atmosphere or water that you put on yourself evaporates into the atmosphere and it it pulls heat that your body's creating because we're inefficient humans and we produce (laughs) heat in order to move. It pulls that heat into the environment, cooling you down. So we have to do things that utilize evaporative cooling or enhance evaporative cooling. So that's going to be things like putting water on yourself, getting into any bit of water that's out on the course, using the sponges at the aid stations and, and really wetting down your, wetting down your shirt, wetting down your hat, wetting down your, your neck, your arms, your legs, you know, try to keep your feet dry because foot stuff is not fun, but, um, you want to, but that's why not only does, you know, doing that feel nice, feels refreshing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what it's doing is it's enhancing evaporative cooling. Um, which once again is the most effective way for us to cool down. The same actually can go for using things like ice bandanas or ice in your pack, or if you're a lady, or if you're a person who wears a sports bra, let's say, awesome. You've got a place to hold ice. We love that for you. And so (laughs) what that means though, is that the ice is there. Yes, because it helps to cool you down and it feels good. Um, it feels good. You know, you can, that's why people put them in their arm sleeves. That's why people put them in their sports bra or put them in their pack, put them in their hat because getting it near major blood sources allows that blood to be cooler as it circulates. And that helps you feel cool and helps you cool you down a little bit. But the other thing it does is it melts. And what is, what is melted ice? It's water and it's Mm. water on your skin, in your clothing, all these places that are going to continue to enhance evaporative cooling. So what I hate seeing at Western States is when people like dab themselves and I'm demonstrating this and it's not a video, it's a podcast. Um, they dab themselves and I'm like, that's not effective. That's not effective. What are you doing? Like put the ice on you. Like they, they have four ice cubes in their ice bandana and they're like hopeful that it's going to work. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like put the ice on you. Like I, I'm not saying that you have to run in a, a, in a running vest. Um, obviously it's not ideal for everyone that is more material on your body. Um, having baggier clothes that can help pull the, that can help, uh, not trap the moisture, but allow it to evaporative uh, evaporate is a nice, is, is nice, um, and is effective. But for the hottest part of the day, I always wore a vest because not because I needed it to carry all my snacks. I was carrying lots of snacks, but it was because my, my crew, akin uh, taking it from the cycling world we make ice socks and ice socks are bits of nylon um like literally go go buy pantyhose from you know CVS or Walgreens or whatever and what you do is you make these kind of softball sized ice um using using normal ice cubes don't like don't freeze it and make this giant ice log that's not very comfortable um using ice cubes we make you know kind of softball sized ice socks. And then my, my crew can make those ahead of time, put them in their cooler that they're carrying around. And then when I get to the aid station, they shove them down my pack. They shove these, you know, this, you know, so I leave aid stations, like probably five pounds heavier just because of the ice. And what it is though, <laughs> is that the, the nylon helps the ice from, to keep it from bouncing out of your pack mm-hmm. and nylon like weighs nothing. So when the ice all melts, your the nylon that you're left carrying weighs nothing. And it's a lot more porous than like a plastic baggie that you've punched holes into. And so I tell everyone, go buy pantyhose, put that ice in your pack um, because it's going. So, so, so people who don't, do not wear sports bras, um, this is a great strategy for you. Mm-hmm. For the people who do wear sports bras out there, the nice thing is that if you don't want to wear a pack, you can put that ice down your, down your sports bra. It could be in the form of an ice sock or it could just be the volunteers are super friendly. <laughs> they, they'll, they'll put ice down there for you um, or they'll help you out. So I think that's really important is that 
Western States is a race that buys pounds and pounds and pounds of ice for every single runner. Use it, utilize it. It's there for you. Um, it's going to, it's going to help. It's, it is very effective. And so I, I, I get so sad when I see people like dabbing themselves with ice cubes, um, because it's not the most effective way to cool yourself down. And if you're in a hot weather race, continuing to stay cool also means that you're likely going to be able to eat a lot better. And for a lot longer, um, I've been able to eat gels through like mile 90, 91 of Western States. Mm. It's probably because I'm thermoregulating. Okay. Because (laughs) my GI, your GI system doesn't handle that as well. So ice water, being able to sweat all that stuff in, in conditions that allow you to evaporatively cool, Mm. super, super important. Um, I personally don't like ice bandanas because I just feel really claustrophobic with this thing right. kind of tied around my neck. So I aim for the ice in my hat, ice in my pack, um, and arm sleeves, I love and arm that sleeves, too. arm yeah. sleeves with the ice down them. It's super effective. Also getting them wet, right. Having that wet, that wet material mm-hmm. on your skin is going to help you utilize evaporative cooling. And I just, I feel so bad for our, uh, East coast racers. I've been out, I've raced out East before I raced out in Ithaca. And although I knew that I couldn't utilize evaporative cooling as effectively, I still tried to get wet when I could so that mm. even if I could evaporatively cool just a tiny bit, hopefully I was getting some of those, those benefits. Right. And so you mentioned, um, so, uh, okay. So ice, right. It's your best friend getting wet. Great. Best friend. Like yeah. let's, let's do it. I would still put my feet in there. Cause I feel like whatever. If you don't get it. blisters, you're good. You're fine. <laughs> right. But if, you, if you're, if you're blister cautious, right. Keeping your feet dry is a great idea, but obviously that's not always practical, but yes, mm-hmm. if you, if you cross a stream, that's knee deep, lay down in it, <laughs> a snow angel in that little Creek that is effective. It's so helpful. Take, take five seconds, take 30 seconds early in the race or during the race to make that because that will pay dividends in the back yeah. half of the race because you stayed cooler longer. What happens when we have all this information in front of us, we've talked about when to implement it, to be prepared for race day, what we can do on race day. What happens when things go a bit sideways on race day, which we know that happens. Quite a bit. Happens. You put a race <laughs> dib on things are bound to go sideways. <laughs> Ugh. Um, yeah, it's hard. And it's like, it's unfortunately, there's no like really exciting answer here. It's not like, Oh, drink this and you'll be fine. Um, it's, you have to cool yourself down right? When things go sideways, like evaluate what's happening and then take action, right? Adapt. Adaptability is really, really important. I've got a sticky note on my um, desk that I'd mentioned in the podcast with Danielle that says psychological flexibility is greater than mental toughness. I can't mental toughness my way out of being hyperthermic. I have to use psychological flexibility to adapt and adjust. I love that. That's awesome. (laughs) You got to cool down, right? And so what that's going to look like is slowing down slow down, like give your body, stop producing so much heat, right? Slow your work rate down. That's going to allow you to cool down. It's going to allow you to get some fluids in, which might be really important at this point in time, get your hydration and get your nutrition back in line. Um, also, you know, take time to cool yourself down. That might mean getting in that river and hanging out there for five minutes. Okay. It might seem like you're wasting time sitting in the aid station with ice on you, but heck, that's going to save your race if it's going to save you, if it's going to allow you to, to get back on track, it's worth it because it's going to pay dividends down, down the trail. So slow down, take time to cool yourself off. So get ice on you, get in the water, um, increase airflow over your skin, um, find some shade, drink and drink and eat some cool foods. Um, and then while you're all doing that, that's going to allow you to get your 
get your hydration and your nutrition back in line because the likelihood is that you're experiencing GI distress. Uh, you probably you're probably nauseated. Um, you know, food's not going in well, so you gotta you gotta recalibrate. So give have some grace, have some self compassion, utilize psychological flexibility, and and be ready to adapt because you have the tools in place. You just need to like have a little bit of grace in order to like just re, you know, kind of reset the system. All right. So Keely, you were talking about how in Western States, like you arrive to an aid station and you're just, your plan just goes out the window. I've had similar things happen to me where I have this plan where I'm like, okay, I'm going to ask for X, X, X. And like, I know exactly what I, what I need to ask, to ask for like five minutes before I enter the aid station. And then I enter the aid station and it's like, like it's just a blank stare or like, I forget these things. Right. And so I think, I think for, for what I've noticed, um, and especially in a, a race like Western States, and this has helped me in, in Madeira is having my crew know these strategies and then being able to implement them for me without me having to think about them. Right. And that's, I think that's something that, that has worked well for me because, um, even before my race in Madeira, I was talking to Corinne and you both about it. Um, and with my coach about the use of caffeine, right? Like my race started at midnight. So I was like, okay, well, I want to use caffeine through the night. Um, but it was forecasted, you know, to stay awake, but it was forecasted to be pretty hot. And, you know, caffeine is, is not the best actually for, um, for helping you kind of stay, stay cool or, you know, even for GI distress. And so kind of like incorporating a little bit of a balance of that, maybe not overloading it. Um, um, and again, it can, for, for me, it all goes to my crew, knowing, knowing these strategies that I've practiced and knowing these like cooling strategies and things that, you know, they, they would need to implement, you know, kind of taking the reins, so to speak, from my brain during a race um, and, you know, know what to kind of, what to prepare for just in case. Totally. Yeah. I think after, after Western States, I put something on Instagram in the, like similar to uh, my decision does not, is not valid at mile 85 or my, my opinion doesn't matter at mile 85. And it goes in line with this too, right? It's like, yeah, I don't know what I want to eat at mile 85, but I also don't need, like, I don't also don't know how much I need to cool. So mm -hmm. again, to your point, like I need to make sure to tell my crew, okay, my goal for all of these aid stations is to leave really, really cooled off. Mm -hmm. And so that's on them. And like, I think your crew's there to help you. So if you give them exact goals and like exactly what you want them to do, they're going to be able to do it. And they're going to be able to get you cool and leaving the aid station. And if that takes a little bit of extra time, just be okay with that and realize that you'll gain so much time later on if you actually cool, cool off. Um, mm -hmm. I've almost learned this a little too late because I did Sonoma two months after Western States and Sonoma was supposed to be like 60 and sunny and the most beautiful day and perfect running weather ended up being like in the nineties as well. And super exposed there. Um, it got really hot, but that day I just had a little mishap go with my crew where I missed my crew for an aid. And I had to have a little talk with myself to just slow down and just continually cool myself and just keep drinking, but to slow down a little bit so that I can maintain that speed. And so, yeah, I've definitely had to learn a bit over the time and hopefully I'll be able to implement some of those at Western States um, this year as well. 
Right. And I think that is so important too, because you have to remind yourself is that like a a couple extra minutes in the aid station, if that can cool you down and that can kind of prevent things from getting out of control, that'll save you hours out on course. And something that I did in Madeira, because I was incorporating, I was encountering um, extreme cold and extreme hot. And I actually took the time to change my shirt three times during that race. And it didn't take any extra time. I was literally doing it while, you know, cameras are on me and then like, you know, eating food and, you know, talking through my, with my crew as they were changing out my, you know, my pack and, you know, we're kind of discussing the race strategy, but that was something that actually helped me feel cool and refreshed. Um, and also prevented me from getting too cold, right. Of wearing, wearing, um, a sweaty, sweaty shirt. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you look at some of the best runners, like I've always looked at front spot N and UTMB, uh, and he changes his shirt every, like, you know, pretty much every race he did it in hard mm-hmm. rock as well. And so it's like taking that extra time to slow down, I think is really important. Um, yeah. yeah and maybe mm-hmm. I, uh, did a little bit of foreshadowing for <laughs> this next portion, but this is actually really interesting. I learned a lot, um, during this portion of the inter- interview from Corinne, of course, I have, you know, read certain things about, um, different, you know, supplements or, or, or beverages that can help, um, in cooling. Um, but, you know, Corinne can kind of debunk, um, some, some of, some of these, these fads that, you know, we've heard around menthol. Um, and like I mentioned, some of the negative impacts of caffeine. So let's cut back to that interview and learn something else. You know, cool beverages are a good idea. We'll start there. Cool beverages are a good idea. But that being said, crushed, like crushed ice, they call them ice slurries. Beverages can be a little, they're almost too cold. So yeah, cool beverages. There's some ice cubes in your bottle. That's great. Um, But ice slurries, so like blended ice, super, super, super cold is actually sometimes so cold that you can, um, it tricks the receptors in your stomach. Um to thinking that you're colder than you are. And it can actually kind of like vasoconstrict a little bit. It can send out that signal to say, Hey, we're cold vasoconstrict. And that's not what you want. So mm-hmm. cold drinks. Okay. Very, very cold drinks. Less. Okay. Um, this is a lot of this research is done in and around the Olympics and in, in a lot of people who do it are things like the Canadian Institute of sports science, the, yeah, I think that's right. Or Canadian athletics. Um, they're based out of Victoria on um, Trent Stallingworth is one of the researchers there. He's done a bunch of stuff with, with heat, um, and kind of like these things that you can do in race to be beneficial. Also the Australian, um, sports, sports science group. And, um, I think out of New Zealand now too, they're really good at this. They, I feel like this is like their area. Um, so after ice slurries, the other one would be menthol. So akin to, you know, products like hotshot, um, or products like there's a bunch of ones that are akin to hotshot that are basically the exact same idea, right? They're like vinegar, vinegar products. It's why we like pickles. It's not because they're salty. It's because of the vinegar, um, for cramping. There are these things called TRP channels or transient resistant potential channels. Yeah. We call them trip channels in the neuroscience world, but trip. yeah. <laughs> um, but basically they're associated with, um, you have them all over the place. Um, but you also have them in your mouth, which is pretty cool. Like in your mouth and in your oro, like your oropharynx cavity. So that's why gargling is effective. You don't necessarily have to ingest some of these products to activate, um, these channels. And what they do though, essentially is that they're associated with temperature. And so that's like, sometimes when you say, oh, this is hot or this is cold. Those are those channels, but they're also associated with things like menthol, wasabi, capsaicin. Um, and so when they're activated, they can basically, they, they can send that signal. 
And so you use something like Hotshot to activate those channels to basically reset the nervous system, basically get your body out of contract, contract, contract to, oh, I contract and I relax. How cool. My muscles work more effectively now. Um, same idea here with menthol. It activates a channel um, and it's associated with a cooling sensation. And so you could you you can utilize menthol um, in a in by, via gargling or via ingesting a product a product with menthol in it um, to feel cooler. So that will help you with thermal tolerance in the sense that you have a you are tolerant to the heat, but it's not going to cool you down. And so that's the one risk with this, I think. Um, there was a big review a review article. It was a meta analysis and meta regression that came out in 2021. Um, looking at the efficacy of sports supplements um, in hot environments, because most of the research that's done, right, is done in like thermoneutral environments, labs, very thermoneutral, real world settings, not thermoneutral. Also, we exercise for way longer than most studies and race. Our races are way longer than most of these exercise interventions in a research study. And so that's really important to recognize. Um, and what they found though, is that a lot of supplements that we reach for routinely in sport for sport for, for sport performance, there we go, um, aren't, do not have high efficacy or even have negative impacts on sports performance in the heat in comparison to the, to a thermoneutral environment. Mm-hmm. One of those being caffeine, which is kind of like all of our ears should perk up. I use caffeine all the time. I love coffee. I just had my second cup a little while ago for those of you watching on YouTube. It was delicious. How did um, you do that, Corinne? It's like 4 p.m. Uh, it was a little while ago, but still. Um, I also, I can sleep whenever I want. Um, I can sleep when I'm deceased, I guess. It's just, it's life, life right now. Anyway, uh, caffeine, we, it's in our gels. It's in our chews. It's in the, it's in Coca-Cola on the race course. We, we like caffeine. We reach for it a lot. Um, and we know that it has high efficacy as an ergogenic aid in a lot of environments. However, caffeine ingestion is also tied to an increase in core body temperature. We know that we know, we know that ingesting caffeine can raise core body temperature. It's not hundred percent clear this happens every single time, or if it's like a certain, we all metabolize caffeine at different rates. And that could be a part of this. Um, you're either a slow or a fast or like a medium caffeine metabolizer. And I'm sure that is important in this discussion, but we just don't know these answers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue is that any, anything that raises your core body temperature removes your, removes a, a portion of your capacity, um, for thermal storage, right? So if you're, if you're, if your core body temperature is going up, you only have capacity to maintain so much more heat before you reach a critical temperature and you become hyperthermic, right? So like, that's a risk. Hmm. Um, it's not, the mechanism isn't completely understood, but that's really important to consider that maybe I take caffeine at critical times in races. Maybe I take them late into the race where it's a little bit cooler, but maybe I avoid caffeine at 1 PM when it's super, super hot out. Hmm. I think I'll be considering that for sure in, in upcoming, in upcoming races, because I don't want anything that elevates my core body temperature. (laughs) Um, that being said, we still don't know everything about this. I'm not saying don't ever have caffeine ever. Um, but it was really interesting that it doesn't have the same efficacy as it does in an, in a thermoneutral environment. And it could even have a negative impact on your race. Um, the, other interesting thing about this, this meta-analysis is they looked at taurine, which is an amino acid. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's found in things like energy drinks, drinks like Red Bull. It's probably where you've seen it. And it could be performance enhancing in the heat. Once mm-hmm. again, 
not hundred percent understood, not hundred percent like, yes, do this every time. Um, what the dosage is, we don't quite understand either. Um, just because every study does it a little differently, but we do know that taurine increases sweat onset and sweat rate, which we mm. like, and it improves vasodilation, which we also like. So taurine could be enhancing evaporative cooling, um, as well as heat dissipation. So I'm definitely not cutting out coffee, um, or espresso, but that's because I'm a fiend. And, uh, but I, I will say, I have noticed that in races that are hotter and I don't have caffeine, I, I do cramp less. And so I think Corinne might be onto something. Um, but I'm kind of in denial because I don't want her to be right because I absolutely love my coffee. I do too. I mean, don't the, also, I mean, isn't caffeine and like creatine, some of the most, you know, studied, uh, supplements for performance out there. <laughs> totally. So I'm yeah. going to listen to, I'm just going to, I'm going to listen to that science. Corinne, <laughs> Corinne, I still hear you and I, and I love you and I know that it's important. So I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll just decrease my caffeine consumption during hot races. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Yes. I think, I think really just the, 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 the moral of that story is that in these extremely long, extremely hot races, caffeine is probably not the best solution. So mm-hmm. Um, cool. Well, we are going to wrap up with society slam. And as always, this is brought to you by aura ring. If you have not checked them out yet, you should go to their page that is linked in the show notes. Um, I was geeking out about my aura ring with one of my good friends over dinner this past Saturday. Actually, she was like, Oh my goodness. Do you know your wellness score for today? And she was showing me that hers was like a level of 50 because she has a one-year-old and was not sleeping for the whole Oh week. no. And your wellness score is, is basically, it's, it's out of 100. And so a score of 50 is very low. Um, Mm -hmm. and it basically tracks your resting heart rate, your sleep per night, your time awake, your core body temperature and your perceived level of stress, um, over time. And it kind of calculates this score for you. And it can kind of tell you like how your readiness score is during the day. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we were kind of nerding out about those because one day, um, like mine told me in the morning, I woke up with no alarm, felt amazing. Mine told me my readiness score was like a 98 and that my brain was going to be super sharp that day. And then I took my organic chemistry test, probably took it in the quickest time I possibly could and got a hundred. So it was like, all right, yeah, my brain is on <laughs> fire today. And I will credit that to Aura. They definitely predicted that correctly. So, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah Cause would weren't you going recommend. to, were you going to check your, um, you're going to track your kind of your recovery after gorge, right? I know you said that. So has there, has yeah. have developed been the numbers have I been mean, pretty accurate? I think so. Because to be honest, the first couple of days after gorge, I was super, super tired. Um, as I was a couple of days before gorge. And I think it was a lot to do with the allergies right now in Portland, Mm. there was just so many things blooming. Now those have since gone away because we got snow and rain. And I've actually been waking up with no headache, feeling really well rested. And my score has been going back up, but it was definitely down. And then after the race, it was saying I was pretty stressed. I didn't sleep super well the night after the race. And so Mm. definitely been keeping me honest, but now I'm trending back up, um, which feels, feels nice. And I wake up feeling that same way. So it's pretty cool to see it in the data and then also feel that when I wake up. That's how I've been feeling too. It's actually, it's really cool. Cause I was tracking it after my Gorge 100 K and uh, yeah, the first three days were not so good, <laughs> but I'm on the up and up now. So we're good. <laughs> Do you go to slam? 
Yeah. So of course, maybe this is like tying this episode full circle, but I wanted to kind of give a personal shout out to an athlete that I coach, Michelle Goldberg. And um, just because we've been working all season and like last season on her fueling for performance. And it's so cool to see her really embrace it. And like the things that we talk about, she sees on trail society and, you know, she's, she's just really inspired by what we're talking about. And it's, and she's one of the ones that we got to reshare and post about for her race that she did. Um, so she's constantly improving and fueling for performance. And, um, I think she's seen the benefits of what, you know, having more calories during the race and, you know, how much faster she can go. So, uh, special shout out to her. It just made me very happy to, to see that, um, (laughs) for her race. Yeah. Congrats. That's awesome. Um, I have one, uh, society sign for today that was thrown into my DMS, um, about something called the trail mix fund. And it's actually established by the Go Beyond Racing team, who's out of Portland here. There's some of my good friends, Todd and Renee. They're a lovely couple. They put this race series on, and they have a ton of really cool races throughout the Northwest. They actually have one this weekend, and they said it's the first time they've ever hosted it, and they have snow. Um, But anyways, they started this thing called the Trail Mix Fund last two years ago now, basically after the onset of the pandemic as a way to make race entries a little bit more achievable for the underserved community. And they kind of evolved it into this fund that people can donate to when they're signing up for races that actually will offset the cost of entry to the BIPOC and LGBTQ plus community. And um, they kind of are quoted saying, while we all like to think this sport is accessible, you just You just need a pair of shoes to run. We know that's not always the case, especially with some of these races being super expensive to get into. Um, And one of the stories they kind of launched out with their first application cycle was that the first application came in in February and was funded within one week. An Indian immigrant who is currently unemployed is getting to run a race this year and applications continue to come in. And as of today, 57% of those funded are people of color. So they are making very cool steps in this realm. Um, they are a smaller race directing company, but they, again, they put on amazing races. Um, they're clearly building an awesome community here in Portland. And so if you guys do have the means to go over there and sign up for one of their races, think about donating a couple extra bucks towards their Tromix fund and giving an entry to someone who might not be able to afford it. So hats off to them. I thought that was so cool. Um, I had not heard about it, but I will definitely be donating to that because I love Todd and Renee and now I love what they're doing with the trail mix fund. That's amazing. I really love this. Yeah. So cool. We're going to say farewell. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And until the next time, we'll see you back here with Corinne joining us too.